Welcome to Korean True Crime with me, your host, Mimi Muziko. In the early hours of May 27th, before the sun had even risen, a taxi driver stopped his car on the side of a deserted forest road. As he unloaded his passenger's luggage, he noticed a peculiar red stain on his hands. Was it blood? The woman disappeared into the woods, leaving the driver questioning what he had just witnessed. Thank you to Vix Mack, Lala, Jay Colomo, Ben Jones, Ashley Rigby, William White, Jiwon Edwards, Nico, Elijah Hancock, Anominom, Dr. Bob, Maya96, Lumos, Emma Brown, and Audrey for your support on Patreon. Thank you for voting on today's episode topic. If you'd like to join my patrons, you'll receive ad-free early access episodes, weekly Korean true crime vocabulary hinting at the content of the next episode, exclusive access to vote on future episode topics, and occasional bonus content. If you'd like to support me with your love, find me on most social media sites at Korean True Crime. Sources are available for free on Patreon. I may sound a little different in this episode because I am getting over having a two-week flu, so please bear with me. Warning, today's episode contains discussion of body mutilation. Listener discretion is advised. As we delve into this true crime case, I am struck by the sheer amount of information we have on this killer and their past. It's a rare occurrence to have such a detailed understanding of their motivations and background of a perpetrator, and it makes for a truly fascinating case. This information is available due to the Special Act on Personal Information Disclosure of Suspects of Specific Serious Crimes. The legislation is quite specific, allowing for the sharing of a suspect's personal information, like their name and photo, only in limited circumstances. Typically, this occurs when sexual offenses are involved and the authorities are seeking additional victims to come forward. Before 1997, it was commonplace for the police to release the name and image of suspects to the media freely, similar to practices in America. However, in the militant dictatorships that preceded President Kim Dae-jung, sharing such suspect information was utilized as a means to deter and publicly shame people, given the ease in which the death penalty was administered. However, President Kim Dae-jung introduced to Korea Son Hae Sang, or Compensation for Damages, which did include defamation and drastically changed the burden of proof in legal cases, which of course was an issue when you were under a dictatorship that could arrest you for literally any reason. It took a while for the media to stop sharing the personal information of suspects following this change, but they also took on legal risks by sharing information of people who may later be innocent, or by sharing victims' information that may cause damage in some form. President No Hyun changed the law in 2003 to actually make it illegal to share suspect information to the public, it suddenly decreased. Criminals' information could be shared later, but not immediately until the police agreed that was approved to report it. Although there were initial objections to the Special Violent Crime Act, the arrest and subsequent media coverage of Kang Ho-sun, a notorious serial killer in Korea, led to a shift in public opinion. The public believed that it was their right to know about the capture of dangerous criminals. Kang Ho-sun's apprehension marked the first time 
time, a serial killer's identity was quickly revealed to the public in Korea. Subsequently, changes were made to the law. Currently, the Special Violent Crime Act permits prosecutors and judicial police to disclose personal information, such as the suspect's name, age, and face, if the following conditions are met. The violent crime must be particularly heinous and have resulted in significant harm. There must be sufficient evidence pointing to the suspect's guilt. Revealing the suspect's information is crucial in preventing further crime and recidivism. And finally, the suspect must be an adult. If you're an avid listener of Korean True Crime, first of all, that's awesome. Thank you. Secondly, you'll know that I have a tendency to delve into these historical side stories, so please forgive me. So let's get back to today's case. Jung Yoo Jung was born in 1999 to parents who experienced a very unhappy marriage. At the age of two, her mother filed for divorce and abandoned her, leaving her with her father. Her family reports that her father had led a life of crime and as a result, Yoo Jung was exposed to these illicit activities. In 2005, when she was six, her father was arrested and incarcerated for a few years. She visited him periodically. Prior to his arrest, he had remarried and Yoo Jung was sent to live with her step-grandparents. In interviews conducted with the step-grandfather, he expressed concern for Yoo Jung's well-being but was unsure of how to help her. After she moved in with her grandparents, Yoo Jung reported that her grandmother was abusing her and she reported this to the authorities, but no action was taken. Yoo Jung's father, who has since been interviewed, remembered the grandparents as being affectionate parents who cared deeply about their granddaughter. Yoo Jung's apparent distress could be attributed to the significant changes that were happening in her life. Eventually, she would acclimate, become more socially active, and spent a lot of time playing outdoors with her friends and even the grandparents. However, she harbored a lot of resentment towards her parents. While not a problematic child, Yoo Jung struggled with social interactions and seemed to lack presence in the classroom. She experienced some difficulty fitting in with her peers and appeared disinterested in doing so. A former classmate of hers would say that during break, she would often retreat to the space between the classroom's curtains and the window to seek solitude and look outside while she ate her snack instead of interacting with the other students. It's common to portray killers or criminals as these enigmatic freaks due to their unusual upbringing. However, it's important to note that many individuals experience social ostracism and yet lead healthy ethical lives. While reporting on such cases, I consume a significant amount of media to ensure I'm not overlooking any crucial details. However, it's disheartening to observe how her social issues are often mocked by other journalists or reporters, using her as a subject of ridicule rather than attempting to understand how her life's experiences shaped her actions. Because we forget that many other people who lead normal lives and don't go on to harm others also had these social issues in school. My background in criminology and sociology leads me to approach these cases with the belief that crime is preventable and understandable. I don't subscribe to the notion that people are inherently evil, even in the face of the most heinous cases. This isn't to say that I think crime is forgivable or that we should sympathize with these people, but I think that we should understand the circumstances that led to the crime occurring. Yu Jung had a peculiar fascination with true crime media. It's not uncommon for individuals, particularly women, to exhibit interest towards the darkest aspects of history or present times, as it's pretty ingrained in human nature to remain vigilant of potential threats. According to evolutionary psychologists, these true horror stories have fascinated human beings since the hunter-gatherer era. With elements of problem-solving, satisfaction of a mysterious story, and suspenseful thrills, true 
true crime has become a very popular genre. However, it's important to note that Yoo Jung's interest in true crime did not lead to her criminal actions. Her sense of disconnection from society, her ability to relate to the killers she read about, and her unaddressed anger could have resulted in a similar fate as self-identified incel school shooters who feel validated in their anger enough to act on it. Yoo Jung, however, did not like to identify herself as an outcast. She said that her peers did not push her away, they didn't bully her into isolation. Instead, she said she just never felt like she fit in and she preferred to keep to herself. Her behavior reflects a very strong defensiveness with walls up all the time. She avoids getting close to those around her and doesn't allow anyone to approach her. It's evident that Yu Jung struggles with extremely low self-esteem. A classmate of hers from middle school spoke on or unanswered questions, a South Korean investigative journalism program, and stated that she had never had trouble with anyone in the class. She had friends that she played with and spent most of her breaks studying in the classroom. She was just a quiet person. During middle school, her grades were normal and it appeared that she had some normal friendships. However, when she got to high school, her personality suddenly changed drastically. She dropped out of high school and started applying for part-time jobs. She lied on her resume stating that she had passed the GED, but when she was granted an interview for a golf caddy job, she didn't do well in the interview despite stating that she was very friendly and a very active person. It was clear in the interview that this wasn't the case. Following the interview, she inundated the manager with multiple phone calls and messages and posted on the job bulletin board inquiring about age restrictions and the possibility of discrimination against applicants. She appeared to be grappling with uncontrolled emotional fluctuations, resulting in her swearing at the hiring manager over the phone. She had been dealing with a lot recently in relation to her father. Yu Jung's relationship with her father was not very involved when she was growing up. However, at some point before high school, her father visited her on her birthday. During this visit, Yu Jung asked her father if he was staying away from her because of the stepmother. She felt deeply hurt by her father's infrequent visits, which would just consist of him coming to her birthday, bringing a cake or a gift, and then disappearing again. On the same birthday, when Yu Jung met her stepmother, she ran into the home and began breaking all of the framed photos of them together. She threw objects and attempted to break their phones while yelling that she never wanted to see her father again. It was at this time that she also began to have conflict with her step-grandparents because she felt betrayed by her father. He made a new life with a new woman and left her behind. She attempted to light her bed on fire, screaming that she wanted everyone else to suffer the way that she was. Then when it didn't work, she tried to hurt her grandmother and send messages to her father threatening to kill him. Her grandfather also saw that she had been searching online about parasite. As indicated by the unanswered questions expert, the unexpected trigger caused her to abandon her studies and have extreme emotional outbursts. She even resorted to job hunting for positions that offered accommodations to leave her grandfather's home. It's plausible that her excessive confidence, followed by depression and mania, were symptoms of bipolar disorder. Individuals typically experience bipolar disorder symptoms during the late teen years or early adulthood. It's evident that she was going through a very challenging time of her life. And due to the lack of close friends or family besides her grandfather, she was going through this alone. After leaving high school, Yu Jung would spend the next five years up to present time living with her grandfather without working or going to school. She told her grandfather she was studying to take the civil service exam, which is a notoriously difficult exam that if passed, allows you to get a great job with some seniority without any experience in that field because you've proven you're smart enough. The examinations are open to the public. 
and you do not need to have gone to college. It's like, for example, passing the bar examination to become a lawyer after high school. It's a pretty big deal. The lowest level test covers five subjects, Korean, Korean history, English, public administration, and administrative law. It also includes an interview. She lied to her grandfather and the police that she had taken the exam and passed, but failed the interview and just needed to study more. She appeared to be extremely sensitive about her own intelligence and lied to make herself appear more educated than she was, considering she only had a middle school level education. She was particularly self-conscious about her limited English knowledge, despite having taken a few classes of English in public school, but many English as a foreign language instructors would agree that the public school courses in Korea are not typically the most effective. Due to the lack of daily interaction at school, Yujung now found herself in complete isolation. She seldom conversed with her grandfather, only when necessary. She divulged that she spent most of her time consuming true crime media and browsing online, but her only online presence was solely for observation. There was no interaction. She spent most of her time in utter solitude, devoid of any human interaction. This form of socially avoidant behavior or severe social withdrawal is not to be confused with strong independence or being introverted. Some people may be content spending a full day or a weekend in complete isolation, reading books, playing video games, or doing absolutely nothing. But psychologists observing Yujung determined her withdrawal to be a psychosociological condition of severe social withdrawal. A term associated with her condition, hikikomori, a Japanese term to describe sufferers of severe social withdrawal for periods longer than six months, may be used to describe her condition. However, South Korea has different parameters to describe social recluses. Korea has determined two types of social withdrawal occurring in their nation, gorip changyang un, an isolated youth, and unden changyang un, a reclusive youth. An isolated youth is a person who is in a state of emotional and physical isolation for a period of six months or longer. Emotional isolation is like there's no one in your life that can help you. You can't get advice from anyone in a difficult situation. There's no one to ask for help, no one to borrow money from, no one to confide in. If you lack people in your life that are fulfilling your emotional needs, then you qualify as an isolated youth. The physical isolation looks like having little to no face-to-face interactions with people other than family and relatives. This doesn't include work or school interactions like customer service or participating in class. Now, a reclusive youth, however, is someone who fulfills three criteria. First, a person who rarely leaves their room or home and only leaves for food, personal hobbies, or may not leave at all. Two, they remain in seclusion for longer than six months. And three, they have no economic activity currently and are not job searching or studying. South Korea has a support system for reclusive youth to assist them in re-entering society as of this year, 2023, because 4.5% of Seoul's population is confirmed to fit this criteria. That would equate to 610,000 people in Korea. The support system was introduced in April of this year, 2023, as the Youth Welfare Support Act and reclusives age 9 to 24 are eligible for a monthly stipend of 650,000 won, or about 500 US dollars, as well as legal advice and medical assistance. Co-living spaces have been established to reintroduce reclusive youth into society. Many stories of former reclusives have been told of people who didn't leave their home for five years or longer. A common factor amongst most of them was crippling anxiety brought on by social situations. One man said he only left his home when he was rushed to the hospital due to his poor eating and sleeping habits because he suffered from stage four chronic kidney disease. He said, even in school where my father wasn't around,
around. I felt like I was walking on thin ice, seconds away from messing up and falling into the ocean. My room was the only place I felt safe. It's believed that the number of recluses drastically increased during the COVID lockdowns, which spanned from 2019 to 2021. Out of the 129,000 young adults who were found to be in reclusion in Seoul, 62% answered that they have mentally suffered from a family member. 58% have undergone sudden financial difficulties, and 57% said they have been bullied or tormented by a non-family member. The welfare program has also been heavily criticized by Koreans who, despite being known for their crowd psychology, also firmly believe that most problems, including violence, should be handled in the privacy of your own family. Professor Kim from Hosa University, Department of Youth Counseling, stated the reason why legal support for recluses in Korea has been so slow in coming is that the problem has always been deemed a personal, family issue instead of a collective social one. Korea society has long played the endless blame game, blaming recluses for being weak and blaming the parents for pressuring them too hard. Yoo Jung's isolated personality type worsened drastically in 2019 as COVID shut down the nation and adapted to people staying indoors much more frequently. It became easier to go long periods without seeing anyone face to face. And considering that she already had no desire to be social, she really became disconnected to those around her. Yoo Jung's time spent alone was mostly online. According to her, this was when she was consuming a lot of true crime content. From her phone and computer records, she was watching a lot of true crime shows and movies. As well, she borrowed true crime books from the library. Her prevailing emotions appeared to be anger, and she seemed to identify with killers who enacted revenge on those who had wronged them. Yoo Jung spent the past three months studying criminal behavior and planning an attack. Her plan involved creating a profile on a popular tutoring app. The app allows users or parents to sign up for the app and connect with tutors who are vetted and verified, despite users not having to verify who they are. Yoo Jung deceptively signed up as a concerned parent of a third-year middle school student seeking English tutoring. In interrogations, she said that she actually did want to receive English tutoring, which is what brought her to the app. She thought learning English could help Help her get a job since her grandfather was getting older and couldn't work. However, her motives remained uncertain as her accounts tend to fluctuate, possibly due to her desire for attention. She thoroughly searched the tutoring app, reaching out to over 55 teachers and inquiring about their availability and determining if they would meet her alone until she found a tutor that aligned with the characteristics of the victim that she had in mind. On May 24th, Yu Jung received a response from her request to hire an English tutor. She had reached out to a very popular tutor from the site who was very highly recommended by a lot of parents. She was the kind of teacher who really had a calling for teaching, and students really enjoyed her teaching style. However, when the tutor, who was a woman in her 20s, who we can call Sua, responded to the request, she learned that Yu Jung lived very far away, so she rejected the request. But Yu Jung had her sights set on Sua, so she pleaded that she didn't want any other tutor for her precious middle school daughter. She used flattery and ultimately got what she wanted. She got Sua to agree to let Yu Jung send her fictional daughter to the tutor's home for a trial session and that she would commute instead of making the tutor meet her at their home. Sua agreed to the arrangement and they set a date two days later on May 26th, 2023 at 6 p.m. Yu Jung spent the next two days planning and preparing for her heinous plan. How is Yu Jung, who is 23 years old, planning to show up to the tutor's home when she told the tutor to expect a middle school-aged girl? She had that planned out too. She purchased a second-hand middle school uniform on Dangun 
a buying and trading app similar to Craigslist, and she bought it to disguise herself as a middle schooler. She was already relatively short at five feet tall or 152 centimeters tall. I have students in elementary school that are taller than me and I'm 160 centimeters. So she knew she could get away with looking like a middle schooler who just had a mature face. Yu Jung arrived at Sua's home and rang the doorbell. Yu Jung stood at her door in the middle schooler's uniform that barely fit her with a knife pressed to her skin under the uniform sweater arm. She was dead set on her plan. After Sua invited her inside, she walked around observing the apartment, checking to see if anyone else was home. We can't know what Sua was thinking, but Yu Jung was acting very suspiciously. Her coldness would give away her intentions. When Yu Jung confirmed that they were the only ones in the apartment, she turned to Sua without hesitation and stabbed her in the neck and chest. Yu Jung thought she had planned the perfect crime. In just a few moments, Sua was dead and Yu Jung coldly began to begin her plan for body disposal. There was no moment of clarity, panic, or regret. Immediately following the attack, she returned all the way to her home, which was not nearby, hence where the tutor didn't want to take the job in the first place, just to pick up a small suitcase from her house. And then she stopped by a supermarket to purchase a larger knife, Clorox, and plastic bags. Multiple CCTV cameras caught her walking back to the victim's home, carrying that heavy bag as if she was merely going about daily errands. You can find the footage on YouTube just by searching her name. She has no panic or anxiety on her face, just determination. Yu Jung states that she then dismembered the body and placed the body parts in plastic bags and then inside of the suitcase. She went outside with the suitcase, now clearly heavy, and dragged on the ground behind her and hailed a taxi. It was 3 a.m. the next morning, May 27th, when she left the victim's home. The taxi driver popped open the trunk but didn't get out of the car to help her with the small suitcase. He thought she could handle it on her own. She put the suitcase in the car and asked the taxi driver to take her to Naktang River near Hopo Station, which is in Yangsan, which is just a little bit north of Busan. I've been in this area, which made learning this absolutely chilling. Yangsan is a beautiful city and the the river flows all the way down to Busan. It's Korea's longest river, actually. Once they were getting a little bit closer to the destination, she started giving him more detailed instructions. Rather than being dropped off near the subway station or walking trails, she requested to be left on a narrow road with a single lane each way. This road was flanked by metal barriers on one side and a grassy hill on the other, separating it from the modern city just 15 minutes away. This road lacked any emergency stopping lanes or shoulders that was intended solely for thorough traffic. You were not supposed to stop here. These specific instructions arose suspicions in the taxi driver who couldn't forget the encounter. When the taxi driver brought her to a small shoulder that he could pull over at, it's reported that he got out to help her take the heavy suitcase out of the trunk since he saw how heavy it was when she put it in. And that's when he noticed the blood stains on the black suitcase. However, later this was entirely found out to be fabricated and the taxi driver had not seen any blood. He hadn't even helped her with the suitcase in or out of the taxi. But he just had a horrible feeling about her and was suspicious about the location that she asked to be dropped off at. The taxi driver refused to be interviewed because he suffered such great trauma after discovering that he had transported a dead body that we cannot get any more information publicly about what he witnessed. But after she got out of the taxi, the driver stayed there, contemplating about the woman who had just taken a suitcase into the woods and wondering if she would come back and need a ride. It's also likely that he was taking a smoke break as smoking is very 
common still in Korea. Hell, I've had taxi drivers get out of the car and take a smoke break at red lights. Yujung says that she went into the woods, took the plastic bags out, buried them, and then brought the suitcase back with her. Why she didn't just bury the suitcase, I'm not sure. Maybe she thought it would be more suspicious to have the suitcase and then not have it when she returned. She had taken Sua's cell phone ID and wallet and kept them with her. She thought she had planned the perfect crime. When she finally came out of the forest, the taxi driver was still there and asked if she needed a ride. She agreed and asked the taxi driver to take her to her grandfather's house. The suitcase, however, was very clearly 50 pounds lighter than it was before. You can just tell visually. And when she lifted it easily into the trunk, whereas before she struggled to get into the trunk, it was clear that something was amiss. The taxi driver, who is praised as a hero, called the police as soon as she paid her fare and told the police everything he could about the patron he just took to the woods and back. Following the filing of a police report and subsequent media attention, the taxi driver has entered a state of seclusion, citing concerns for his safety. He's denied requests for interviews, and it's plausible that he fears potential retaliation if Yu Jung receives a short prison sentence. After the police arrived to talk to the taxi driver, they arrived at Yu Jung's apartment at 6am and arrested her on suspicion of committing murder and abandoning a body. This was an emergency arrest per police code that a police officer has reasonable ground to suspect that the person has committed a serious crime and may destroy evidence, flee, or be a danger to more victims. During Yu Jung's transportation to the police station, she complained of severe abdominal pain and menstrual bleeding, prompting the police officers to take her to the nearest emergency department for medical attention. As per their duty of care, the police officers ensured her safety. Yu Jung was assessed by a gynecologist who found no evidence of the reported symptoms. She was subsequently taken to the police station where she was booked, questioned, and ultimately arrested on May 29th due to concerns of her being a flight risk. Three days later, on June 1st, according According to the special act, her identity was revealed because they had sufficient reliable evidence that she had committed the crime, despite the fact that Yu Jung actually denied killing Sua. She had an uncooperative attitude towards the investigators by constantly changing her story. At first, she said that she had just accidentally hurt Sua and tried to cover up the mistake by hiding her body in a place that she usually walked. But that was clearly a lie because she lived more than 15 kilometers or roughly nine and a half miles from that area. Remember that she's considered a reclusive person who doesn't leave her home for anything other than necessity. She wasn't going on any walks in Yangsan. When the prosecution came to speak to her, she apologized profusely and agreed to faithfully participate in the investigation, but the second they actually started questioning her, she quieted up and refused to comment or make any statements. She would only state that she wanted to speak to a lawyer. The next day, she finally admitted that she did commit the crime by stating she believed that she had gone crazy and that wasn't who she really was. She had to confess because CCTV footage of her walking with the suitcase and buying the bags of bleach that she used on Sua were released to the media. Two criminal psychologists were assigned to conduct psychopathy diagnostic tests that week, and on her first test, she scored well within the normal range of an average neurotypical person. She wasn't suffering any of the typical indicators of someone with a neuropsychiatric disorder, such as the lack of empathy, poor behavioral control, antisocial behavior, or deficient emotional responses. But then suddenly on the second test, with a different criminal psychologist, she scored so high that she was above infamous serial killers. How could could that be? Well, there appears to be some confusion regarding the psychopathy diagnostic test. Contrary to popular belief, it is not a self-administered questionnaire, at least not in Korea or America. Rather, there are various diagnostic tests employed in assessing psychopathy. 
The specific test utilized depends on the psychopathologist or criminal psychologist conducting the diagnosis. These tests are conducted by trained professionals with an in-depth understanding of psychopathy and sociopathy and are skilled in identifying the associated traits. They analyze the individual's history and consider any character witnesses, such as prison staff or arrest records, in making their diagnosis. The administering team takes the interviewee through a series of questions, verifying their responses by posing the questions differently and in random orders. This process is essential as people may lie or respond differently based on their perception of the language's intensity. Given that individuals with psychopathy may be predisposed to lying, this methodology is critical to elicit authentic responses. The questions can be presented in various formats, and the process can be time-consuming. Perhaps the initial test taken by the interviewee was straightforward, leading to her modifying her responses. The team likely conducted a more extensive and rigorous test to determine any variations in her answers, but her actual tests are not accessible to the public. To trick these tests, a person would have to have a perfect memory, and many people do not. It's vital to understand that the psychopathy tests are administered by experts who have devoted themselves to study on this subject matter, making it very difficult to fool them. If the results are inconclusive, a prefrontal cortex MRI with emotive imagery can be conducted to identify the lack of emotional responses to stimuli, although it may not be necessary. It's worth noting that while psychopathy is not an official diagnosis in the DSM-5, antisocial personality disorder, which may also include sociopathy, can be diagnosed to distinguish callous, unemotional traits. It's important to note that while many killers are psychopaths, not all are. In an attempt to comprehend Yu Jung's actions, authorities have initiated an extensive investigation with multiple experts. During the initial questioning, Yu Jung stated that her step-grandparents, particularly her step-grandmother, had continually subjected her to abuse throughout her stay with them, leaving her traumatized. Yu Jung maintains that she had attempted to seek help on multiple occasions, but her pleas went unheard. A letter written by Yu Jung while in custody revealed that the abuse primarily occurred during her younger years, and that because it happened so long ago, she can't prove that it happened, but despite this, she urges the public to believe her. It's unknown whether these allegations can be substantiated, but it's consistent that she had indeed reported the abuse to the authorities during her childhood. It was recently discovered that Yu Jung had used the Dangun app where she bought the used middle school uniform to try to lure someone to her home to kill. She had contacted a seller to purchase an item and agreed to meet them in a crowded area. However, the seller felt super uneasy because Yu Jung was acting very suspicious. She was checking over her shoulder frequently. She was walking watching people who went by, and after agreeing to buy the item, she asked the seller to follow her back to her place because she forgot her money. But the seller was like, no, I'm not going back to your house, declined it, and decided to leave. The seller's intuition was correct because Yu Jung had planned to kill them the second they got back to the apartment. But thankfully, her plan had failed. When the police got a hold of her phone records and her phone data, she had no interactions with any friends. When they opened up her Doc, the Korean message app, she had no contacts except her family members, and she wasn't even talking to them. They couldn't get any information about who she really was from anyone around, because even her grandparents didn't know who she really was. Her neighbors, however, noticed that she did go out of the apartment about three or four times a week in the afternoons, which made them think she may have had a part-time job. It was discovered that this was the time that she was visiting the library to read true crime books. 
Several experts not officially involved in the case have hypothesized that Yu Jung may be on the autism spectrum. These experts voiced their thoughts on unanswered questions, the investigative television program, and parents of children with autism spectrum disorder called in to share similar experiences. Public perception of Yu Jung's behavior and demeanor as bizarre and abnormal has been stigmatizing, and the experts highlighted its potential role in her violent behavior. Both ASD and antisocial personality disorder do not inherently make anyone have a higher likelihood of violent behavior. Fear often stems from what we don't understand. It's worth mentioning that the Korean Psychiatric Association made the entire production team of unanswered questions apologize for broadcasting untested claims that Yu Jung may have ASD merely because she was violent. This only serves to associate autism spectrum disorder with criminal activity and is not okay. Since we are still waiting for a sentencing trial while she is in the Busan Detention Center, she has submitted dozens of letters of remorse to the court, hoping to get a lighter sentence. She has since been placed on antipsychotic medication, and her first trial date was on July 14th, and when asked if she admitted to killing both Sua and mutilating and disposing of her corpse, she did did say yes, she admitted it, and she consented to the use of all of the evidence used in court, and her first official court date, with lawyers present, would be on September 18th. She officially withdrew her statement that she didn't plan the crime ahead of time and admitted to planning to kill Sua. There were over 220 pieces of evidence presented. On October 16th, 2023, last week for me recording this episode, in a third trial, she was asked about her motive. She stated that she wanted to kill someone because she hoped that they would be re incarnated together. She didn't elaborate any more on this because the prosecution didn't question her about it. She stated also that she was extremely intoxicated when she committed the crime, which is a very common tactic in Korea to get a reduced sentence if you've ever listened to any of my other cases. She also stated that her plan, if she wasn't caught, was to make it look like the victim had just disappeared or ran away so that the family wouldn't suffer as much, but this explanation was implausible and bizarre. During the trial, the defendant's grandfather testified and attested to having no knowledge of her intentions to commit murder. However, he acknowledged that she had been struggling with severe depression, which caused him to be worried about her well-being constantly. Since her arrest, he had been experiencing significant distress and guilt for not being able to prevent the incident. He expressed a desire to contact the victim's family and apologize personally, but the victim's family declined to share their information. Yoo Jung's sentencing has been postponed to November 6th, which unfortunately I cannot include in this episode. I had anticipated that her sentencing would have occurred by now, but it hasn't due to unforeseen circumstances. I intend to provide an update on the situation either in November or December via my Patreon, where I'll delve further into the case as well. This case has drawn attention to the issue of social reclusiveness, leading to stigmatization and unfavorable comparisons to other countries' struggles with social isolation. Unfortunately, because of these events that occurred this year, social recluses are often portrayed as as dormant criminals just waiting to strike. This perception has been fueled by a significant rise in knife violence, not just public stabbings, but also in interpersonal violence in Korea. For those interested in learning more about the recent string of stabbing sprees, please vote for 
feather-related episode on my Patreon page because it's much too much for this episode. Individuals who chose to isolate themselves from social settings shouldn't be deemed potential criminals. Rather, this behavior is symptomatic of a larger issue within our society. These individuals are not only withdrawing physically, but also emotionally, taking their troubles and frustrations with them. Unfortunately, if not addressed, these feelings can reach a boiling point. If you find yourself in a situation similar to this and feel like no one is there for you, resources are available that are free of charge. Remember, feeling isolated is not your fault. Even if you believe there's nothing you can do presently, know that you are capable of overcoming this challenge. Thank you for listening to Korean True Crime. If you'd like to hear more, follow the show wherever you listen and be sure to leave a review. If you'd like to send me feedback, follow me on all social media sites at Korean True Crime. See you next time.